You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. And Evergen, powering the transition to a resilient, renewable, decentralised energy system of the future. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual, but from a different place, um, out there with the cicadas this evening is uh, David Leach from ITK Services. Um, David, how are you? I'm well, thanks, Giles. And uh, another big week uh, in the electricity market and so much to talk about today. And uh, uh, I guess some of the policy outcomes uh, continue to astonish us here in Australia, probably more than any other country in the world. That we probably won't have, and we probably won't have time to talk about electric vehicle policy uh, because that would take a whole episode. And I haven't uh, written the full book of insults yet, but we'll get there. <laughs> well, look, um, funny you should mention that. Um, I've actually got an interview in the bag with uh, Jake Whitehead from University of Queensland about that very issue, EV policy. And look, you are right. There's a lot to talk about. So much has been happening from the AFR summit uh, earlier on this week to a new chair of the AMC and more battery storage announcements and a bit of hydrogen and uh, goodness knows what else. But um Look, I am just going to talk very briefly about electric vehicle policy. Um, it was really quite remarkable. Uh, the South Australian came out um, a couple of weeks ago with its ideas of having an electric vehicle road user charge. Victoria came out with great details um, last Saturday. And I tell you what, just from the readership of our website, uh, I've never seen such a reaction. Uh, it took more than 250,000 page views in less than a week just on the subject of the electric vehicle road tax. So it is really, if you think there's only 6,000 electric vehicle drivers out there and 250,000 people were sort of tuning in on just on our website to um, to find out what was going on, it was quite extraordinary. And, and David, I mean, you know, without going into the details, it just seems to be yet another position where Australia is taking the wrong move Um lack of coordination and just not thinking through the issues. Um, we've heard this before. Well, I'd be interested to hear what our guest tonight's got to say about it. Uh, but uh, I guess it's just so, it's such a silly policy in so many ways that are so obvious. That uh, um, um, the thing that I would say on the positive side, <laughs> uh, and it won't happen, but it would be an opportunity for the feds to actually step in and do something positive uh, um, because we need a coherent electric vehicle policy. I, I can get the idea that roads have to be paid for, although they're paid from all sorts of sources of revenue. Uh, but the fact is, first of all, we need to get rid of the petrol cars and get electric cars onto the road. Uh, and then we can talk about uh, the uh, amount of taxes or whatever revenue that electric vehicles should pay. But at the moment, the policy should be to incentivise electric vehicles, not to disincentivise them. But yeah. Well, no, that's exactly right. Um, yes. Look, let's have a listen to this interview. It's um, with Jake Whitehead, who's uh, from the University of Queensland. Jake Whitehead, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Great to be with you, Giles. Look, it's great to have a bit of insight into the electric vehicle industry, but this is probably not the way that we wanted to do it. Um, the EV taxes announced a couple of weeks ago by South Australia and then in more detail by Victoria last week and possibly foreshadowed by 
New South Wales has certainly grabbed the attention of the EV industry. In fact, judging by the readership on um, our websites, um, the um, a lot of people in general, were you expecting this sort of thing to be thrown upon the EV sector? Look, I think the reality is there's been murmurs and whispers for some time now that um, this may eventuate uh, uh, you know, at some point, but we were certainly expecting that there would be some form of stakeholder engagement and there would be some modelling release so that there would be clear evidence to support whatever proposal was being put on the table. And I think what's been the biggest shock from my perspective as a, as a researcher is that um, a lot of this policy, which clearly is going to have a significant impact based on what we've found, uh, as, 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 has been announced without any evidence backing it up, without any investigation in terms of what those uh, consequences are going to be. And I think that's the, the most disappointing part of all of this, to be honest. And not just that, it just it seems to have been without any consultation, and yet they've gone quite a long way down the design of this um, of this um, EV tax, uh, 2.5 cents a kilometre for electric vehicles, 2 cents a kilometre for... Um, uh, for plug-in hybrids, um, nothing for um, pure hybrids and no change in heavy vehicles who seem to do the most damage to roads but pay the least. Yeah, it, um, it's, it's curious, isn't it? You, you would think that in the, the current situation we would be wanting to move towards um, reducing emissions, reducing the amount we spend on fuel, redirecting our spending from foreign fuel to Australian-made energy, and yet this policy uh, appears to be doing the complete opposite, and it won't even achieve the so-called objectives um, that are behind it, because ultimately what's going to happen is, as we're demonstrating, uh, if these taxes go ahead, which I very much hope, um, you know, sense comes <laughs> to, to win the day and, and, and there are some changes, um, but but if if not and and they go ahead, there will be a significant decline in EVs uh, sales. Uh, they, they'll be restrained um, for a significant period of time. And instead of buying an electric vehicle, uh, people will probably just buy the conventional hybrid, which will only further exacerbate the decline in fuel excise. I think this whole argument about how EVs are breaking our roads and EVs are why the uh, fuel excise is falling. It's, it's just rubbish. It is absolute rubbish. It's not underpinned by the evidence. The evidence clearly shows that the reason that fuel excise revenue has been in decline for some time now is because of improvements in fuel efficiency, but also the significant subsidies that go to particularly mining operations for vehicles that run off-road. Yeah, what worries me is this um, is this hybrid, what you've just sort of talked about, sort of pushing people into hybrids. Now, hybrids, you know, it might be a useful thing, but it's not a long-term strategy. It's um, I, I sort of heard it compared, or maybe it's myself that's compared it to the, to the fax machine. And it's interesting to see that in the UK, but also particularly Norway, when they have their ban on ICE vehicles, um, petrol and diesel cars that comes into force in Norway in 2025, they actually include hybrids and including hybrids. Um, plug-in hybrids, which just basically means that for environmental purposes and for health purposes, they want all fossil fuel cars out of the out of the system, 
um, no matter how little they produce. But um, as you say, this looks like encouraging um, hybrids. You've come up with some quite sort of um, distressing calculations. Um, a 25% reduction in sales out to 2050, we're 25% below what they would otherwise be because of this, and a, um, I think a 40% increase in emissions above what they might be otherwise um, without a properly conceived policy. Tell me how you got to those conclusions. Yeah, so we ran a, just coincidentally, believe it or not, we were running a survey um, earlier this month um, that was looking at consumer preferences towards electric vehicles. And one element of that was what the impact of road pricing could be on, on consumers' willingness to purchase electric vehicles, and also looking at how um, different incentives could hopefully encourage uptake. So uh, lo and behold, when uh, all of this started to break, um, we, we, we rushed and, 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 and tried to work as hard as we could day and night for the past um, week and a half, two weeks, to plug all of the numbers into the model that we've been working on for some time, update our results, rerun our results, um, do some checks, and, and out came um, the, the distressing figures of, as you said, by 2050, we're expecting that uh, if this EV tax was implemented right across Australia, the sales rate would be 25% lower. Um, but actually, if you look over the period of the 30 years, it would be somewhere between 35 to 68% fewer electric vehicles sold. And that translates to between 5 and 10 million vehicles, which is just a huge number. And it shows how sensitive consumers are um, to taxes. I don't think that's a surprise, um, realistically. If on any other product we came out and we said we were going to add another GST or double the GST rate, which is effectively what consumers are perceiving this EV tax as, a doubling of the GST, um, of course it would decrease sales. I, I, I don't know how anyone credibly can stand up with a, a straight face and say that it won't have any impact. It, it's ludicrous to think otherwise. And um, yeah, this modelling is just showing you know, the, the, the potential extent of that. Now, it's early modelling. There's still work to be done and we're continuing to refine it. Um, but this is, a, this is a, a wake up call for governments that are releasing policy that isn't underpinned by evidence. They need to get their modelling straight and release that to the public and do proper stakeholder engagement before releasing and announcing policy on the fly. Yeah, it's interesting what you sort of say about the way that the perceptions of this um, as a sort of a doubling of the GST, because some people argue, well, look, if you actually look at it and you think about how many pe kilometres people drive an EV a year, it'll probably only cost about 300 or $400 a year. Why should that dissuade people from buying EVs? But you make the point in your analysis that it's actually people will make the decisions largely based around a perceived price, and this adds to that perceived price significantly enough to for people to sort of you know look the other way that's right i mean we, we're already facing a situation where electric vehicles on average are more expensive than comparable internal combustion engine vehicles now um there's people like yourself like myself you know my household we we've made the choice to buy an electric vehicle um, you know, uh, in, in some ways it can stack up depending on how often you drive and, and how you use it. But certainly um, in, in, in most instances, we are 
paying a little bit extra for the you know reason that we want to reduce emissions both in terms of the potential health impacts for our family and our community as well as the global community in terms of um, global emissions now any additional increase in cost only you know through a tax that only further pushes um, the market's you know ability to be able to adopt the technology and so we want to be going in the other direction we want to be incentivizing uptake not making it more difficult for the average Australian household to adopt the technology. And I think the other thing to note is it's it's interesting that they focus on this, you know, kind of number around, you know, two, three, four hundred dollars a year. They seem to forget that you own a car for several years and that number seems to, you know, add up over time. So if you look at the average life of a car, um, somewhere between 13 to 15 years and you multiply that number out, you get actually pretty close to what the consumers in our survey um, have stated they were uh, perceiving that cost to be. Uh, so, you know, at, at a, a, an increase in the purchase price of about $4,500. So they're probably actually not um, overestimating the impact that much when you look over the entire life of the vehicle. I find it extraordinary. I did see one piece written in the conversation um, this week, um, sort of talking about this and sort of arguing that it was actually a good policy um, and justifying it on the basis of their calculations, which included only 46 weeks a year, I think, and just to and from work. Um, nothing about the Saturday weekend runarounds in your car and the um, the holidays and things like that. So they managed to sort of eliminate sort of a large amount of um, people's sort of driving habits. And um, also then sort of compared it to a 10 litre of car consumption, which I think is someone sort of noted um, basically a, um, um, you know, a, um, a sort of a, an urban assault vehicle. Um, anyway, but what I don't get about this is the different states seem to be coming at it from sort of, well, roughly the sort of same position, but at different angles. They're going to have different pricing mechanisms. I can't for the life of me ha understand how it can work and how it can be actually sustainable for a long term seems to me to be more of a revenue grab by the states. Um, they seem so unconcerned that they haven't actually consulted with the EV industry. They just will think that, well, if we manage to sort of lay, lay a land claim to this bit of revenue, then the federal government can either take us off it, take it off us, but um, we might have some sort of bargaining chip by having a so-called policy in place. To what extent do you see this as sort of, you know, sort of financial bickering between the states and the, and the federal government? So I think it's clear in terms of where this policy has come from. It's been out of state governments, treasury departments, not their environmental departments, because there's a clear disconnect between um, states, you know, willingly wanting, um, supposedly at least, to move towards a lower emission future and a policy like this, which is completely contrary to that, uh, that um, objective. I think there may be a little bit of politicking going on here between um, you know, what could be perceived as a future tax grab by um, the federal government. But the reality is all of this needs to be pushed aside. We're, we're really missing an opportunity for greater reform. And, and I should say, I am actually quite a strong um, advocate of reform of our road tax model. I've worked on road pricing schemes for over 10 years and uh, I have experience living in Stockholm, um, Sweden for uh, a good five, six years where um, I was lucky enough to experience their, their congestion tax there, very effective policy, 
one of my PhDs, at least um, part of it was focused on that specific policy and how they used it to actually encourage low and zero emission uptake. So I am of myself and am not against road pricing and I think there's some merit in it, but we need to be much more strategic about what that policy direction is going forward. And if we want to go in that direction, it has to be as a replacement for the existing scheme, not an additional tax. Mm. It seems to be um, it, it, that much is put in the too hard basket, which is um, a, a bit of a cop out in, in, in my view. So, look, you've looked at these schemes, you've looked at this thing. I mean, you, you, you advocate, you say there's a need for reform. So, so what, would a, um, what would a Jake Whitehead reform look like? So, in fact, if you, you look at other organisations like Infrastructure Victoria, um, these ideas have been floated before. And so um, there is a, a lot of uh, opportunity for governments to pick up some of these good ideas and run with them. But my perspective on this is that we should be abolishing registration and stamp duty as, as a starting point. They should be going for um, electric vehicles. And then in addition to that, what our modelling shows is that that in of itself isn't enough. You would actually need to then look at making toll roads free for electric vehicles and probably making them exempt from GST until the 2030s. So that's a pretty tough policy to bring about. Um, but if you couldn't make them GST exempt, you have to bring in some other kind of financial incentive that was, you know, in the thousands of dollars to the equivalent to the, to the impact of that. So what we're really talking about is a pretty significant incentive package that needs to be agreed upon um, across both state and federal government in order for a low pricing scheme to be put in place. And that's exactly what we model in this, um, in this study that we're, we're developing. We show a scenario where we can have high electric vehicle uptake, we can have a low pricing scheme but it's paired with a very significant incentive package. And the ironic thing of all of it is that you actually raise more revenue by the end of the 30-year period by going that direction because you've got far more electric vehicles in the fleet compared to what's on the table where we're going to be you know, raising pennies because it's just going to restrain the very thing that you're trying to supposedly encourage the uptake of when you just tax it instead. Hmm. So how does that work then for the, all the other cars currently on the road? So you're talking about giving incentives and exemptions for electric vehicles just to sort of drive that uptake, and you, you say that that's needed to be able to sort of you know get you know get the manufacturers to bring their cars here to Australia and get the sort of the choice and the and the lower prices for people um, to to pick it up. So just leave the rest at status quo at the moment, or would you flick them over to a road user charge reasonably quickly? I think um, the first thing we should be looking at is actually congestion pricing in cities. So in our modelling, we also look at how you could um, implement a, a congestion price in the capital cities in the late 2020s, and that would apply to all vehicles. You might provide a, a little bit of a, a discount to the, the zero emission vehicles because um, they're not producing uh, pollution in those really dense uh, areas, uh, but certainly that's a policy that has been implemented um, in many other places around the world. As I said, I, I lived in Stockholm and experienced it firsthand. Extremely successful. Um, but the, immediately in, uh, in, in Stockholm after it was introduced and for some time after, it had reduced congestion by the order of 20 to 25%, which was a really 
positive impact in terms of um, reduced travel times um, and, and also just that reduced pollution in those inner city areas. So I think that would be the first step. And then, you know, over time, what we would basically see is a large component of the, the car fleet in Australia shifting to electric. There probably would still be um, petrol vehicles and diesel vehicles by mid-century, but hopefully a pretty small component. And again, sometime in that 2030 period, everyone would transition over to a road pricing scheme. So I think the transition probably would be over a different time frame um, for the, uh, the, the current vehicles. But the main thing that we want to target for all vehicles at the moment is congestion and pollution in our inner cities. Mm. One of the things that one of the key ingredients, of course, in the transition are fleet owners, um, uh, private fleet owners and government fleet owners. What do they want to see? So I, I can't speak on, on their behalf as to um, what they want, but certainly I know that from any fleet that has vehicles uh, that are traveling, you know, decent distances, let's, for example, take taxis or, or ride sharing fleets where they're driving um, you know, much more per day compared to a, a private vehicle, there's a real strong economic argument for them to be able to transition to an electric vehicle. This is much cheaper to operate. Um, but what's holding them back at the moment is in some ways the model availability and also that price. I don't think we're too far off that tipping point. And I think that under kind of a business as usual scenario, we would probably see that evolve over the next five, six, seven years. Um, we certainly, you know, I, I, I should make it clear, even under business as usual, where we don't introduce any EV road taxes, we still are going to have a very in, difficult time in trying to reach net zero. I, I personally don't think we will reach net zero if we do not incentivize EV uptake because the transition will be far too late. But that aside, business as usual is, is certainly far better than the negative consequences we are um, forecasting could occur should we introduce um, these EV road taxes. Mm. Well, thank you very much, Jake. I really appreciate your input and uh, for sharing your analysis and um, continue join, enjoying your electric vehicle. And um, hopefully uh, we can talk again uh, sometime in the future in uh, possibly happier news to, to share. <laughs> I hope so too. I hope so too. Thank you. And that was Jake Whitehead from the University of Queensland. David, his principal conclusions from the research that he's been doing is that this could have quite a significant effect on the uptake of electric vehicles. He points out that many people, when thinking of electric vehicles, are attracted to what they see as the perceived price. So if they see a um, an extra tax or road user charge to them, that just looks like a doubling of GST, and it basically sort of blurs their whole sort of perception of whether it's a good deal or not. And, and we do know that electric vehicles have not been taken up quickly here in Australia. Um, simply because there's just not enough range and not enough choice and the sticker price is still way too high. And I don't think this sort of policy, even if it can be resolved uh, by the federal government stepping in, um, is really going to make an, uh, Australia an attractive place for electric vehicles. But David... We, we need to signal, Giles. I mean, it's, it's the signalling from governments that's incredibly important. Uh, as you'll know, we, we don't even see all the models that are produced uh, around the world um, because everyone knows that um, state governments and federal government in Australia 
aren't really signalling that we need electric vehicles, even though in Europe, uh, uh, petrol cars, for instance, are going to be phased out quite quickly. And we, uh, so we'll have to do something. This is the point. Then we'll, we will have to do something a lot better than what we're doing at the moment. And if, if, if a government steps in and provides the appropriate signal, and that's what, more than anything, that's what Matt Keane's done in New South Wales, uh, then, then the market, everyone, business will follow along. You need a good signal. I mean, that's why the gas strategy gets so much traction. It's because the federal government's given that signal. I mean, it, it gets traction even though it's not a very good strategy. Yes, a bad so idea. Imagine what you yeah. do with a good strategy. Sorry. Just imagine. No, no, no. Just imagine. No, please roll on. Um, no, exactly right. And um, as you mentioned, um, in in Europe, they're they're moving to a um, a ban on new new petrol and diesel sales by twenty thirty, as early as twenty twenty five in Norway, and that includes hybrids and plug in hybrids. But um, look, you've just mentioned Matt Keane, the New South Wales Energy Minister. Really, quite remarkable seeing the confrontation, almost an open confrontation, um, albeit via, via video conference at the AFR Energy Summit. It was actually quite entertaining, if quite a bit dismaying. But um, Matt Keane sort of feeling under pressure from the um, some of the big utilities and the big lobby groups and Angus Taylor, but really standing firm and um, and achieving. They managed to roll through this um, new well, they call it an electricity plan, but essentially it's a renewable energy transition plan. Um, after thirty hours of um, fierce debate, um, or at least sort of elongated debate in New South Wales um, upper house um, through Wednesday. Wednesday and Thursday night. Yes, it's a, it's a great plan. It was always going to succeed because it had the support of all the major parties. Um, I, I always wonder uh, about the confrontation between Angus Taylor. I mean, whether it's actually real or whether it's just been played out. It's political theatre being played out for their various interest groups. Uh, mm. I think, you know, the main thing, as I've said several times, and it's worth saying again, it's the size and scope and ambition of what New South Wales is doing. And that's why it's going to have so many ramifications for so many other players, because historically New South Wales has been a net electricity importer. And we knew the New South Wales coal stations were going to close. And this was a sort of great opportunity for lots of other uh, energy, whether it was brown coal from Victoria or uh, solar and wind from South Australia or solar from Queensland to come in and replace it. But now, uh, with New South Wales, it's going to be essentially self-sufficient, or in fact, it's going to have a surplus. And so this is, uh, really changes the thing, not just in New South Wales, but for pretty much every other, every other player in the market. And so this is really only the start of a long story. And it's the size and scale and scope of the plan that illustrates just how impoverished the federal government policy has been. And I don't say that in a political way. I just mean that talking about 1,000 megawatts of gas generation, which may or may not be needed, probably isn't needed, not supported by any modelling. I mean, there's just so, you know, nickel and dime stuff. There's just the lack of vision, the lack of ambition, the lack of the lack of uh, big federal government thinking, the sort of thing that got Snowy built in the first place. It's just so absent from, from the kind of policy announcements that we're seeing at a federal level. And again, I don't say that in a political way. It's just that I, I look to our leaders to, 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 to not just to think big, but to execute in a way that's actually going to make a difference to the country. And that's what I think Matt Keane's doing. 
Yeah, absolutely. Look, there was one sort of positive element um, coming out, uh, one positive announcement coming out um, from, at least partially from the Federal um, Minister's Office and um, partly from Lily D'Ambrosio's office in Victoria. And that was a commitment to um, at least get moving on the new VNI West link in Victoria. Now, this one's quite essential. It'll be the second link from New South Wales to Victoria. It'll be in Western Victoria. Um, so it will help unlock many of the re resources uh, which won't get developed in the next seven years because there basically is no network capacity. It'll probably unblock some of the congestion that's affecting other wind and solar projects. And um, I guess the good news is is that it's another sign that um, despite any sort of great public support that the um, AEMO integrated system plan is at least been taken at least partly seriously. Yes, no, I, I think that's right. And I mean, I think there are lots of reasons for the federal government to come to the party on that. Um, for one thing, it, without more transmission from Victoria, it will just hasten the, as we've said several times, the closure of the brown coal stations. There's going to be a surplus of electricity in Victoria, that's for sure, uh, when eventually Stockyard Hill... <laughs> so it's become a joke to me, Stockyard Hill, but it will, it will eventually start up and it's a big wind farm and then you've got Mirabel as well. Uh, and, and, and other projects, and that'll create a surplus and, and it'll create ramping requirements for these brown coal generators. And the obvious place to send the energy is up to New South Wales, uh, and it's, that's going to need more transmission than's been available so far. And so, so uh, that, that's where we are. It brings me mm. on to this other point, uh, Giles, that we, uh, which was Origin Strategy Day. Uh, um, Origin is, in a way, uh, an interesting company because they're in gas. They're not really in coal generation. And they accept that, I think, that their erraring coal-fired power station has a limited life. And, in fact, their strategy today talks about ways to make it ramp even more than it does already, and it's good at ramping, uh, but also to maybe uh, run some of the units on a campaign mode, that is, to run them for a few months of the year and, and maybe close them down for the rest of the year. So they're quite happy with that. But the thing is, then, what do they do after that? And it's not going to be gas generation per se. I mean, that might, that has a role, but it's not much of a role in Australia. If it'd be lucky in the medium term, if it does 10% of total energy, I'll be surprised. Uh, I expect less. Uh, but uh, but the gas and LNG experience and transfer transferring that experience into hydrogen and maybe the emerging exciting area uh, that can reduce the transport cost of hydrogen is uh, putting the hydrogen into ammonia. Uh, ammonia is very easy to transport in LNG-style carriers and at very low cost, and then you convert it back into hydrogen uh, when you get to the destination. So the economics of that has still got a long way to go, but it's the most promising technology area and something I think we're going to hear more about and something Origin's doing there. And then it's got its uh, uh, a project to just do hydrogen export in, in Queensland, uh, and it's no more than a headline at the moment. Uh, and yet they're talking about going into front-end uh, engineering and design, which is expensive. It typically costs in the tens, twenties, thirties of millions of dollars to, to do feed, as, as it's called, uh, for a decent-sized project. And so committing to that in the current financial year is, is, is a big step and a lot earlier than I would have expected.
It is a lot earlier than uh, one would have expected, and they're talking about even starting exports um, within a, um, a year or two. So that's really interesting. The other fascinating thing I found about that was that Origin was actually explaining during the we- during their um, webinar presentation, their Investor Day presentation, that this is going to be demand-driven. So it's all very well for Australia to sort of say, okay, we're going to have green hydrogen projects, we're going to export them, and somebody's going to buy them. Um, Origin's point was that this is, you know, the de- the demand from East Asia or and North Asia. Uh, will be strong and quite interventionist. And, and, and we've seen that already with Origins Townsville plant being done in conjunction with Kawasaki, one of the big heavy industry um, companies in uh, in Japan. And we also see Mitsubishi heavy industries pop up in South Australia with a purchase, I think it's called um, H2U or something like that, um, who've been building that, um, who are going to build the one at um, Port Augusta. So there's another big green hydrogen project with an active participation of uh, Mitsubishi Heavy Industries. They've bought a share in both the company and the project. So um, interesting stuff indeed. Yes, it is. And, you know, the um, I'd observe that the Chinese companies and the Japanese companies uh, compete in one area or another, and they all tend to do the same things, you know. Uh, <laughs> so if you see one Japanese com- big company doing something, you're quite likely to see another one. And as I've said on uh, this podcast before, it's it, it, hydrogen represents a, a new opportunity for the conventional oil and gas majors to actually get in on the ground floor. They've basically completely missed the wind and solar thing, so they had to find something else to do. Uh, and, and hydrogen is something that they think they can bring their uh, big company, big business, global business uh, expertise to, and we'll, we'll have to see how well that works out. I've also mentioned that in much of Asia, I think... Uh, um, as much as they are willing to import hydrogen, uh, they're also going to try and become energy independent. And, the, and so some of this Australian hydrogen is going to have to compete with the offshore wind produced hydrogen produced more locally. And uh, I think there's a bit of a lot of competition that's going to be a lot stronger than people realise from the offshore wind as, as that develops. But again, we'll watch that space and see it's going to be play out over, an, over a few more years. Absolutely. Look, just a couple of other things to sort of go through in in in, in passing. Um, the Australian Energy Market Commission has a new chairman. Um, 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 I'm just struggling, just trying to find her name now. Um, from um, a lawyer, head of innovation. Uh, yes, from yes at yes. Allen's and at uh, Allen's. She ran a uh, she ran a uh, two hundred person practice there and and also ran their uh, energy and infrastructure practice so um, I think uh, uh, and, and and said that she championed female uh, roles there uh, so I think it will um, someone who comes in with an innovation sort of background is likely to be wanting to take a fresh look at how things are done and that's that's I think could lead to quite a big shift in time in the way that the AMC thinks about things, and possibly even you know innovation means how you go about doing things. You know the whole process of making rules uh, could be reviewed because we need a faster way of, to make rules because the rules of the the game is changing so quickly, and it's pretty obvious to everyone that it's hard for rules to keep up with when the actual technologies are changing, and no one even knows what's a good rule. Uh, and by the time you've got it in place, the game's changed again. Uh, so that's that's what's required at the AMC to get out in front a lot more. And so I think having an innovation person, at least on a piece of paper, is as good a choice as the next one. 
Absolutely, and I should just point out that the name of the new chair of the AMC is Anna Collier, and apologies, the name just escaped me, escaped me in all the excitement um, at the time, but um, and she's also been heavily involved in some of the um, advising on renewable energy projects. So from that point of view, with the legal side with on, on the renewables, she would have had really interesting insight into some of their issues um, connecting to the grid and dealing with the sort of the myriad rules. So it's going to be fascinating to see how that plays out as you say. Um, probably just last one, unless you've got something else, um, David, the um, Australian Energy Market Operator's Summer Readiness um, Plan has come out and um, for all intents and purposes, they appear to be ready. They forecast no excess of the reliability standard. Um, they're very thankful for another five gigawatts of wind and solar coming into the grid. They say that sort of um, filled any holes. There's no extreme heat being forecast. Um, it's more likely to be a cyclone than a bushfire this year, but there is is always, you know, the risk of extreme events and, and, and things going pear-shaped, but um, they think they've got about 2,000 megawatts of reserve, which they can call on um, if needed. So um, touch wood and fingers crossed. Um, it um, it should be... Um, things, look, um, things look more solid than they have in previous summers, put it that way. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I think the, uh, you know, it was the years Im immediately after Hazelwood closed that the, was the biggest crisis because we had no new supply. I mean, one of the things and Angus no, Taylor no was planning. going on about, yeah, and no planning. One of the things Angus Taylor was going on about was the risk of early coal station closure. That's he's quite right to talk about that. I mean, I think that is the right, we are going to see coal stations close early. I'm pretty confident about it actually, uh, but I am also confident that the price, provided it doesn't all happen all at once. Uh, the, I don't think the price shock will be uh, anywhere near as bad as it was when Hazelwood closed because I think we now can see the supply pipeline coming through and, and the ways to deal with it. And in fact, I think this is the next emerging area for policy is how to ensure uh, each coal station knows where its closure place in the, clue, in, in the queue is. At the moment, it's another element of the market where you question whether the market or planning is... is uh, going to produce the best outcome uh, and that was a that's another major debate at the moment because there's no doubt there is a more planning element involved in what New South Wales is doing even though there's also plenty of com competition in it as well uh, but if you accept that we're going to have a lot of new supply and it is going to lead to coal stations closing closing then you really want to do that in the most efficient way and the question is uh, and efficient from whose point of view the owner of the coal station or the consumer, uh, or and are they both been satisfied by the market? These are the questions that I think uh, will need to be answered over the next few years. Mm, good stuff. Anything else to add, David? Or I think we should just uh, maybe just sort of wrap up um, wrap up on that point. Uh, it's enough to flick the switch for this uh, particular episode, I think, Giles. Uh, electricity remains as interesting and fascinating as ever, and uh, you've got to give some credit to the AFR. Uh, uh, they actually um, improved their energy summit. It had a good range of views expressed, I thought, through the paper. Uh, and, and, and so, well done. Okay, fair enough. And on that note, I shall knock over the um, desk light, and which just crashes to the floor. And I shall say thank you very much to our sponsors, um, Evergen and Pylon. Thank you all for the listeners. Apologies for the raucous noise um, at the end here. Thank you very much for listening. Do look out for our other podcast, The Driven. And there's a new episode there, including uh, Test Drive in MG and uh, talking to the Head of Product Development at MG and also with Solar Insiders. Um, thanks for listening. Bye for now, and we'll be back next week.
Energy Insiders was brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises the performance of residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy of the future.